All right, good morning. We are going to go ahead and get started. Probably we'll have a few more people trickling in as they navigate the gravel on the uh, parking lot that is in progress, but uh, let's go ahead and get started since it is 9.02. Uh, welcome to week two of our Sunday school class on the essentials of the Christian faith. Uh, if you attended last week, uh, or like me, listened on sermon audio, you uh, got Pastor Brent uh, taking us into this class. And you know that we are using as our guide for it Dr. R.C. Sproul's book, uh, Essentials of the Christian Faith. Well, here we are, week two. And as some of you are wondering, and as some of you have asked, who is this guy? So if we've not met, my name is Stephen Freeland. Um, my wife, Kate, uh, you may know her if you don't know me, but uh, she's at worship team rehearsal this morning and very disappointed that she can't sit in the back and make funny faces at me. Uh, we have three children. Um, as I like to joke, we have three above average children, but I'm not telling you above average in what ways, who are down the hall in Sunday school class. They are uh, 10, 9, and 6, and we've been coming to FCC for nine years. So for my kids, most if not all of their life has been as a member or a part of this body of church. And from Sunday school to Awana uh, to the weekly preaching of God's word, we've been very blessed as a family. Uh, to be a part of FCC. Uh, when you couple that with the courageous homeschooling that my wife does, my children really do get a spiritual IV of truth, just nonstop truth being poured in. And obviously, my hope and my prayer is that they would, uh, whenever they are released out into the world as adults, that they would hold to every single one of these essentials that we're going to be talking about in this class. Um, but my fear is that either that they would reject uh, the truth or that it would only be head knowledge, that it would never penetrate to the heart. Um, as we've been seeing just on a weekly basis going through the book of John with uh, Pastor Logan, it takes the sovereign work of God to break through human hearts and to take even right thinking <laughs> and make it true faith. Um, Christ confronted a lot of uh, religious leaders who believed and would say all the right things, but it was not in their heart. And so may God have mercy on my children. May God have mercy on all of us to allow that truth to penetrate beyond the head into the heart. Well, turning to our topics for this week, as uh, Pastor Brent indicated, um, we're going to be going through different chapters at a very high level, and that's by necessity just because of the number of topics and the nature of those topics, we're not going to be able to delve in depth into each one. But uh, hopefully this gives you a broad spectrum of the essential truths of the Christian faith. And for many of you, I'm sure that you are well familiar with many of these subjects. Uh, perhaps others of you, you're going to be reminded of some topics that you have always wanted to delve more deeply into. And this can hopefully provide that launching pad for you to, to get into and be immersed in God's word on these subjects. But uh, in either case, I'm sure that there will be great profit and blessing from this class. Um, today, I'm going to be covering chapters two through four from the book. And if you've read the book or if you've read ahead, uh, you'll be familiar with the subjects, though I'm gonna take them in a slightly different order. Okay, so it's chapters two through four, but for reasons that I hope become clear, I'm actually gonna go in the order of three Four, and then two. So we're going to talk first about immediate, immediate general revelation. 
That's chapter 3. Chapter 4, then, is special revelation in the Bible. And then chapter 2, paradox, mystery, and contradiction. So that is our overview. And remember last week, uh, or hopefully you do, um, Pastor Brent talked about two types of revelation. Do you remember what the two general, two categories <laughs> of revelation were? Special and general, exactly. And general revelation is general in what two ways? A little more, a little more nuanced, content and audience. It is general revelation because it goes out generally to everyone, uh, and its content is more general compared to special, which is more specific, more nuanced, more tailored, as is the audience of special revelation. Well, chapter 3, which we're going to deal with first, uh, elaborates further on general revelation, breaking it down into two types, the two types that you see right there, uh, immediate and immediate general revelation. Now, don't be thrown off by that word immediate, and Dr. Sproul touched on this in his chapter. He brought up the memory of his mother saying to him, go to your room immediately. So we kind of think right away, right away. But if you think about that prefix uh, M, I M, and how it's used in words like immaterial, not material, imperceptible, not being perceived. And so with immediate, yes, there is this idea of right away or without loss or interval of time, such as we have an immediate need, a need right now, but another definition, and what we're, we're actually using here for, for this chapter, is immediate in the sense of acting or occurring or being without the intervention of another object, cause, or agency. And the example there is the immediate cause of death. What was the direct cause of death? You have somebody who suffers an injury, but then there's something that cuts off that and actually causes the death. That's what they say the cause of death was. So that is the uh, use of the word immediate that we're going to be talking about. And so conversely, if something is not immediate, but immediate, it is acting through an intervening agency or intermediary. Now, I think I shared this when we started off. I'm, my day job is being an attorney for one of the local companies here in Kansas City. And mediation is something that I'm very familiar with where you have got a third party uh, that both sides in a lawsuit come to and ask to mediate or be the intermediary between the two sides. And so you give your position, we're not going to settle this case except for this amount. And then he takes that or she takes that to the other side and it's just this back and forth, um, this intermediary going in between. So, immediate general revelation. We're going to talk about that first. Let's consider how we see these truths revealed in Scripture, because ultimately that's what really matters. So I'm asking you, what mediates, what communicates God's general revelation to us? Did anybody see anything on their way to church this morning that communicated the Nature. Exactly. 
creation and all of its complexities. Not just what we see, but what we taste, we touch, we smell, we hear. Be it birds, flowers, mountains, people. All of these external factors that play upon our various senses, which are themselves created things, mediate or communicate the general revelation message. This is from the book of Romans, chapter 1, verses 18 through 21, saying, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. You know, passages like this really dispense with any sort of victim mentality or excuses of innocence. You know, the scenarios that people like to draw up, well, there's got to be some village of people out there that are in the rainforest living happy lives, singing kumbaya, and then they wake up in hell because they had no idea there was a God out there. Romans 1 does not give us that excuse. The Bible says that they are without excuse because what can be known about God is plain to them. That's not saying that everything that can be known about God is plain to them. We will come to special revelation, but what can be known, his invisible attributes eternal power and divine nature, those things are suppressed. And as Pastor Brent shared last week, um, the well-known declaration from the Psalms, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky proclaims his handiwork. Nature is not divine. Some people confuse that. Nature is not divine, but it does display the divine. We all live in this created world, and it declares, really it screams about the existence of God his eternal power, and his divine nature. Now, of course, you can start to imagine who people, uh, people who come up with arguments to play devil's advocate, perhaps literally. Well, what about the person who is blind, deaf, mute, and a paraplegic who can't smell? How can that person take in creation and have a sense of God, that he exists? Well, that is where immediate general revelation comes. So without that external feed of creation, we know from Ecclesiastes 3.11 that God has set eternity in the heart of man. And what we see on our slide here, Romans 2, 14 through 15, so the very next chapter, for when the Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that emphasis here The work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So not dealing with any external, mediated, sensory experiences, but what is written on the heart. And we can read from John Calvin's Institutes that, I think he sums this up well, that there exists in the human mind and indeed by natural instinct, some sense of deity. We hold to be beyond dispute, since God himself, to prevent any man from pretending ignorance, has endued all men 
with some idea of his Godhead, the memory of which he constantly renews and occasionally enlarges, that all, to a man, being aware that there is a God and that he is their maker, may be condemned by their own conscience when they neither worship him nor consecrate their lives to his service. And do we not see this across all cultures and all times of human history? Think of all the pagan religions that have existed across generations and cultures. Paul noticed this in Athens uh, when he stood up in that meeting at the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Because he had walked through that city and he had seen all the temples and the idols. And even an altar with this inscription to an unknown god. It was they, they were worshiping so many things, but they realized there might be something that we're missing. So we're just going to construct something that says to whatever unknown deity there is out there, we have our bases covered. And so I do agree with Dr. Sproul that general revelation is both what is mediated or communicated to us through creation and the world that we see, but that also there is something innate um, that does not have to be mediated, but it is immediate within the human heart that God is, that his divine nature and eternal power are present. I mean, we don't have generations of cultures and people who are saying, well, aliens dropped us off. We were overcrowding their planet. They dropped us off here, and now let's party. No, you have an innate sense of God and accountability. And so you have things like rituals. You have uh, acts of penance and repentance. It is built into the human psyche, as John Calvin summarized So let me summarize chapter 3. Again, we're moving fairly quickly, and we're about a quarter of the hour past. So hopefully we'll keep that pace up. God's glory is evident all around us. It is mediated through God's creation. Number two, human beings are religious by nature. And number three, God implants in all human beings an innate knowledge of himself. This is called immediate general revelation. Before I go to chapter 4, are there any questions, comments, observations, anything like that? Okay. Well, if you do, please don't feel like you have to wait for the summary slide. Just jump in. So, chapter 4, Special Revelation and the Bible, which prompts the question, why not stop at general revelation? Why not let general revelation be our missionary? If man is without excuse that there is a God, why not stop with general revelation? Well, tell me that and without using the Bible. You can't. Without special revelation, you really can't know why you need special revelation. So um, let me run through just the things that we understand about God and about ourselves, about this world, thanks to what God has revealed in his word. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Hebrews 1, 
1 and 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. This Jesus, Acts 4, 11 through 12, is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Saved from what? Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Is that a problem? Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. John 20.31, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. What is faith? Why is it necessary? Hebrews 11.6, without faith it is impossible to please God. Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So faith, Romans 10.17, comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And then lastly here, how then, Romans 10.14-15, through 15, will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? You see, stars and sunsets are beautiful, majestic, God-declaring, God-glorifying things, but they are not going to preach the soul-saving truth that men and women and children everywhere need to hear to be saved. To know why we are here on this earth, what comes next, and the triune living God to whom we are accountable, we must have special revelation from that very God, and praise the Lord that we do. For this reason, Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And there is so much to unpack in that statement. Man or mankind, shall live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Mm -hmm. Now, was Christ talking simply about words, audible words, that men and women are supposed to be hearing from a thunderous voice from heaven or perhaps in a synagogue? Of course, we know that God did audibly speak at various specific moments in the Old Testament to his prophets like Moses and Isaiah. And so you do get direct quotes as you read the Old Testament, thus says the Lord. And of course, God incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ spoke directly and audibly to people here on earth during his earthly ministry. But again, such verbal declarations came at specific moments in time. Are we then out of luck? If we're not there to hear those words spoken, if we can't be the people who happen to be living at the times they were spoken, well, of course not. Jesus was talking about Scripture, about the writings. He says, it is written. With each temptation that Satan hurled at him, Christ responded with that, it is written. The Word of God lost none of its power or its authority by being written down. If you're a student of Latin, you could read that for me, but um, it is vox Dei, verbum Dei, the voice of God, the word of God. That is what Christianity says is the Bible. This is not just a man book. 
Did God use men? Yes, he did. But it is ultimately God's word, the voice of God that we find in Scripture. Now, what does that mean? And let's start with maybe what that doesn't mean. It doesn't mean when we say that this is God's word, the Bible is God's word, that it fell from heaven. No, it didn't fall from heaven. It was something that was written over centuries upon centuries, Old Testament and New Testament. And by men who were not robots, men who were, yes, bringing their culture, their personality, their vocabulary, their perspective to bear, and yet God superintended by some amazing act. He superintended in these individual authors so that what they actually wrote down for us would be his very word. We say that scripture is inspired. Of course, I think many of us are familiar with the key passages of scripture that deal with this subject of inspiration. Does anyone know what that word inspiration means or communicates? means to breathe in versus breathe out. God breathed is, that's what it means. Yes, it is, it is God breathed. All scripture is God breathed. We know from Second Peter that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Again, what, what exactly does that look like? What does it look like that men were carried along? That's hard to say. But it's what Scripture says. It's what we believe. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 Apostle Paul writes, We thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. There you see that joining of human and divine in the conveyance of scripture. God used his men to write the Old Testament, to write the New Testament, to deliver it to us. And yet, what is it really? It is the word of God. And the apostles themselves were aware that what they were doing as they wrote the New Testament is that they were being the instruments of God to convey the scriptures. Here's what the apostle Peter said, speaking about the epistles from Paul. They are hard to understand. Comforting words for all of us. Which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Joining the Apostle Paul's epistles with other scriptures. Now, inspiration, as we've said, does not mean that God dictated, that there was no um, real life being lived by Paul as he wrote his epistles to churches who were dealing with real issues, as he was addressing people by name. Paul was very much aware of what he was doing, he was not a robot. But that was God himself superimposing there, superintending what Paul would communicate. And since God is the ultimate source and author, we know that it is his word, 
And we know that he, as a God who cannot lie, who is truth itself, has given us his inerrant word. That's why Christ can say to his father in John 17, 17, your word is truth. And in John 10, 35, scripture cannot be broken. Due to its divine source, a God who is true, who does not lie, who is outside the limits of time and sees all cultures, all peoples, who is not surprised by any of today's philosophies or archaeological discoveries, that God is the one who is behind his word. And therefore, we can, we can affirm that his word is infallible. It is incapable of making mistakes or being wrong. Unlike people, you know, I can get a 100% on a test. Does that mean I'm infallible? Well, no, look at my other test scores. Clearly, I am capable of failing. But scripture, by contrast, is infallible. It cannot be wrong. It is also inerrant. You see the word there on your screen, meaning that it contains no errors. Why is that? Because the author is himself infallible and inerrant. Um, now, before we talk about manuscripts, copies, this does not mean, you have to be careful when you read scripture, this does not mean that everything in the Bible is true in the sense that it is to be believed. Let me give you a quick example before you run too far with that. Genesis 3-4, you shall not surely die. Take that on its face. You shall not surely die. Scripture has said it. But what's scripture recording there? The words of someone very opposed to God. The words of God's enemy. You can read in scripture lies, deceptions, blasphemies. The Bible doesn't pull any punches in dealing with the human characters and reciting things that they actually said and did. But all those things were written for us to learn from. Not always subscribe to. I would say the majority of Scripture, yes, is what is being declared that we should subscribe to. But we want to rightly handle the word of truth and be wise in our interpretation of Scripture. And we have a chapter coming up next week on private interpretation. So, you know, if somebody tries to bring up, well, you know, this is what someone said in the Bible, how can you say that that is, you know, still the way that you're going to live? You're not going to eat shellfish. You're not going to wear cloths with a mixed weave. Again, you have to sometimes zoom back and say, okay, well, what was being said? Why was it being said? And how has progressive revelation of Scripture uh, given further light upon that portion of Scripture that we're dealing with or that may be at issue? But moving on to this topic of... Um, copies and manuscripts. When we say that the Bible is inerrant, that does not mean that copies of the Bible or that translations have no errors. The doctrine of inerrancy is something that is applied to the original manuscripts of Scripture. Human copyists, human translationists do not become infallible agents simply because they turn their skill to copying, writing down, translating the scripture. Because the Bible is the most attested ancient book there is, we have so many copies, thousands upon thousands of copies of New Testament manuscripts. We know that we have mistakes from copying the scriptures over the centuries. We can see the copies that differ from one another. Um, now thankfully what we find is a remarkable consistency when you compare those copies you have remarkable consistency when it comes to the main tenets of the Christian faith. There is no 
error discovered in a copy that has students of God's word hanging in suspense about whether or not the doctrine of justification by faith is true or not, or whether Christ was real. Those things are never in dispute. Typos here, missed words there, a number wrong on this version or that version. Yes, you can see those things. But we have the promise from God that his word will not pass away. The grass will wither and the flower will fade, but the word of God abides forever. Heaven and earth will pass, Christ said, but my word will not pass away. You know, this is interesting. I got, don't go down this rabbit trail this morning. Anybody know how many uh, draft versions of the Gettysburg Address there are? There's five. Go to uh, American Battlefield Trust, if you've ever got some time. They have a website, American Battlefield Trust. And I found this uh, synopsis, which I thought was really good. Five unique copies of the Gettysburg Address exist. While each of the drafts exhibits minute differences in spelling, punctuation, capitalization, and word choice, each copy retains the same basic meaning and formula. It's interesting how secular authorities can say that without a hesitation in the world. Well, of course, you know, there's a little variation here, a little variation there, but each copy has the same basic meaning and formula. But if there's one copyist error, ah, can't trust scripture because of that inconsistency. And yet, what we see is remarkable consistency throughout the course of time as God's word has been preserved. So in short, we know that man has fallen. Um, question, I'm Steve. Say, right. Right. Absolutely. And you can do that for no other ancient text. Absolutely. Yeah, and you know, the Dead Sea Scroll uh, discovery revealed copies of books of the Old Testament that predated Christ, prophecies about Christ that predated Christ, where, of course, you know, moderns want to try and say, well, you know, these, these things are being tweaked and twisted after the fact to make it look like it was a coming uh, realization of prophecy. But no, you're right. We can go so far back through textual criticism and see uh, the remarkable uh, way in which the word has been preserved because you had people who who cared about that and who obviously God cared about it and he kept his word preserved um, throughout the centuries which is amazing and so we should uh, let me go ahead and get to our summary here um, chapter 4 dealing with special revelation in the Bible inspiration is the process whereby God breathed out his word God is the ultimate source of the Bible God is the ultimate superintendent of the Bible. Yes, human authors wrote, but God is the ultimate superintendent of what the message would be. And only the original manuscripts of the Bible were without error, completely without error. And you find, um, of course, the, the, the uh, cumulative evidence that we have through textual criticism. We, we do see what the word was. We also have a chapter coming up next week on the canon of Scripture that we'll deal with, which uh, will also be interesting to deal with uh, on this subject. But let's, in the 10 minutes or so that we have remaining, let's deal with this uh, chapter 2, Paradox, Mystery, and Contradiction. And I felt like it was important for us to cover the chapter on spe special revelation first before we dealt with this chapter. Uh, and 
zooming out, I think it's important to realize that crises of faith can happen at different stages of the subjects we've been talking about. Uh, you, you do have the people of Romans 1, who despite the general revelation that is available to them, both within their own hearts and through creation, say, no, I'm not going to accept that. I'm going to reject that. I'm going to suppress that truth in unrighteousness. Other people get past that stage. Okay, there is a God. I believe that there is a God. But then they get stumped on special revelation. Well, it's just a human book. I'm not going to believe that. Others may accept special revelation for a time, but they get into the Bible. They encounter what seem like contradictions and say, I'm out can't believe this and yet more people fall away so this is really important this is a very important subject in this age of scoffers and skepticism it is crucial that we be able to contend for the faith and part of that is able is being able to distinguish between what dr sproul said were the thin but crucial lines between the three concepts that you see here paradox mystery and contradiction you know as mortals, we can never really, truly plumb the depths of who God is. He is God. And yet God has chosen to reveal himself in his special revelation, the Bible. True things about God are declared in the Bible, and they are true, irregardless of whether or not we are able to fully understand them. Is anyone here an honor student in physics or calculus? If you are, you have my admiration because that was not me in high school. Did you say accounting? Uh, calculus or oh, physics. Calculus. Oh. Okay. I think a lot of you are in the same boat as I am. Not honor students in those things, but the truths, the fundamentals, the facts behind calculus and physics, those things exist regardless of our ability to actually understand them. The same thing, of course, is true about God. How do you understand, truly understand, the truth of the Trinity, or the hypostatic union, the fact that Christ was 100% man and 100% God. And Dr. Sproul's point was this, just because things are mysterious does not mean that we then get to leap into irrationality. Rather, we just need to recognize when we are dealing with something that is a true mystery, as opposed to something that is a paradox or a contradiction. Uh, Dr. Sproul shared this quote uh, from the late Christian philosopher Gordon Clark, which I'd, I'd never heard of, but uh, I like his quote. He said, paradox is like a charley horse between the ears. Just stumps you mentally. The Greek root for paradox is to appear or to seem, meaning at first it seems like we are dealing with a contradiction, but what you're actually experiencing with the paradox is something two things or statements or, or multiple things or statements that can be reconciled. And there was this example in the chapter, Matthew 10, 39. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Well, how can those things be true at the same time? You find your life and lose it, or you lose your life and find it. Well, how do we reconcile those things? We understand the sense in which Christ was speaking about both of those things. You are losing your life from the world's perspective in this present life on earth. You are taking up your cross and following Christ. You're going to forsake the world 
You're going to cleave to Christ. You're going to fight the flesh. You're going to lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And in doing that, you find your life in a spiritual sense, even though in a worldly sense, you are losing it by making that choice. And of course, there are, when you look at the gospel accounts of Christ's life, well, he was over here saying this, and then he was over here saying that. It seems like there might be a difference there. Well, are we talking about a different witness's perspective? Are we talking about an event that shortly followed thereafter, but perhaps the connection was not made in the other gospel account? Paradoxes are things that appear like there's a conflict, but there is actually not a contradiction. Speaking of contradictions, does anybody want to take a stab at the classical law of non-contradiction? No takers? Two opposing views cannot both be correct. There we go. Or, if you want to say it in a way that sounds very high school algebra-like, A cannot be A and non-A at the same time and in the same respect. I cannot say, I am Stephen Freeland, and I am not Stephen Freeland. Okay? There is a contradiction there. Those things cannot be true at the same time in the same respect. How about this one? Eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Adam and Eve, and you shall surely die. You shall not surely die. Contradiction. Contradictions and lies stem from Satan, the father of lies. And so, of course, he will try and make God guilty of what he himself is guilty of. Look at all these contradictions in the Bible. Hey, Stephen. Yes, Sean. think of, like, people, I hear, I hear this a lot, I work in a very secular world, and I hear people say uh, all the time, well, what's true for you may not be true for me, or, you know, live your truth. And those kinds of things really, they kind of speak to that idea of the law of non-contradiction because what's true for you has to also be true for me. And what's not true for me has to also not be true for you because we can't, we can't live, you know, I think of that sticker on the back of the windows that say coexist. Yeah, in a way we should all love each other and, and not, you know, do that. But at the same time, different belief systems don't. Right. 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 And oftentimes, um, that's specifically targeted at Christians. You need to be more tolerant. But if they would actually go and talk to the Muslim, the Muslim would say, no, I'm not going to say that the Christian is just as right as me. I have the truth. They're wrong. And those things cannot coexist because they are contrary to one another. That's exactly right. But, you know, pulling from that example of what was said in the garden, how do we resolve this? In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. What God said. Did Adam and Eve die the day that they ate it? Or did they keep on living, have lots of kids, and die later on? Spiritually died. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think there I think we're dealing with an, a, par- a paradox, something that looks like a contradiction. Well, God said they were going to die in the day that they ate. Did they die? Yes, they did. Also, too, through that declaration, God got to display his mercy as well. No doubt about it. They died that day spiritually. 
but God also got to display his mercy. And I, I was thinking of how to give a real-life example. If I tell my kids, do not jump on the couch or I will give you discipline. If they jump on the couch and I show mercy and I say, you know what, I'm not going to spank you. We're going to have a talk. There's going to be other consequences, but I'm going to have mercy. Was I lying, therefore, when I said, do not jump on the couch or I will spank you? No, I wasn't lying. I intended to do that. It was the right and just result for disobedience. But I chose at that point to have mercy. And mercy cannot exist apart from some standard, some declared standard. If I had never had a rule, don't jump on the couch, and they jumped on the couch, well, am I not merciful for not enforcing the law that I never declared? No. But I declared the law, and I chose to have mercy. And I think that, again, no doubt Adam and Eve died that day. God could have also coupled that spiritual death with physical death, and he would have certainly been consistent across the board, 100%, both physical and spiritual, but he did not. Mysteries seem like contradictions because they are linked by unintelligibility. I can't understand this, so it's got to be a contradiction. But that's actually where the link between mystery and contradiction ends. Because with mysteries, we lack the information or perspective to understand that they are not contradictory. And some of that will be because we are here in this life, we are limited by our flesh, and in the world that is to come, mysteries may be revealed to us. Some mysteries will be revealed in this life, at least for some people. Think about the book of Revelation. You read that, and there's a lot that you wonder about. How is that going to look? How is that going to come to pass? Maybe our generation, it may be a future generation, but there are mysteries about the book of Revelation that will be experienced in a very real sense uh, and become demystified when it's actually occurring. Others will happen uh, or be unveiled in heaven, and still other things, I'm sure, I know, will be forever reserved to God and God alone. So how do we know what we're dealing with, whether it's a paradox, a mystery, or a contradiction? We know that it is the glory of God to conceal things from Proverbs, but the glory of kings is to search things out. So there is, there is true value and benefit. It's a noble thing to delve into these things, um, to not be blasé, passive about it, shrug our shoulders and say, eh, I don't care. No, we must be students of the word. And especially when people want to charge our God with lying, we should take that very personally because we belong to that God. We are his children. That is our father. That is our savior, our older brother. But we also have to do that in humility, recognizing that we are still human. And who can know the mind of God, like truly know the mind of God? Like these two verses here to end this uh, chapter. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So where God's word is clear, we need to take refuge there. We need to stake our lives upon the clearly declared word of God. And what we know about God is that he is good, that he is holy, that he does not lie. And so we, we can have that as our firm foundation and be willing to say that is a mystery. I may never know it, 
I may never understand it, but I trust the God who has that reserved that mystery for himself. And I also trust that as I'm going into his word to see, okay, how, is, how do I resolve this paradox, this seeming contradiction, I'm going to trust that God will either get me there or he'll give me the grace to understand what is a mystery and where to simply let it lie with him. So in closing, in closing paradox, an apparent contradiction that under cl- closer scrutiny yields resolution. Mystery is something unknown to us now, but that may be resolved. Contradiction is a violation of the law of non-contradiction. It is impossible to resolve either by mortals or God in this world or the next. Can you give us an example of a mystery, that which is specifically stated as a mystery within the New Testament? I mean, they use the word mysterion Mm -hmm. in the Greek. Right, right. I'm just curious, what what, what do you consider um, fundamental mysteries, that which is revealed through special revelation Mm. as a mystery? Well, certainly you see, let me kind of take a roundabout way in answering that question. Certainly in the New Testament, you see the mystery of the gospel being discussed. And that was something that was hidden, that was mysterious in the Old Testament. That the the Hebrew scriptures, uh, as they existed prior to Christ, you do see the gospel there. But the Messiah had to die. Yeah. But, But so much that was yet to be unpacked and revealed. But what we do get revealed in the New Testament is that revelation of a mystery. Moving to the New Testament, what is a mystery of the New Testament? I think there are some things in Revelation. I mean, you see uh, numerous Orthodox Christians who vary greatly in their eschatology of end times. How exactly is God going to wrap all these things up? Yeah, true, but doesn't Paul speak about these words mysterion repeatedly? Oh, um... You, you, we might need to link up after class. The word, I, that, that phrase is coming to mind, but I'm not remembering the context of it, I'll confess. All right. Yeah. All right. Well, let me close this in prayer. We're just a few minutes after, but uh, we'll be dismissed in a word of prayer. Oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kindness to us and for how you have shown yourself faithful from generation to generation of your people. We know, Lord, that the deep things are reserved to you and that there are many mysterious things that we will puzzle ourselves over but uh, may it always be in a in a, uh, a stance of faith and a heart of trust towards you knowing that you are good you are holy uh, help us to be diligent students of the word when there are things that we do not understand let us uh, dive all the deeper into your word and uh, know that you have there uh, the things that we need for life and godliness We thank you for this time together. Pray that you would bless us uh, going into the worship service now. In Jesus' name, amen.